Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Uh, hi, this is Ben Edmund. I am the creator of The Tick and you are listening to Genertainment. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment over at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts Marks and Julie. We're back after a long break due to other projects and life just kind of getting in the way. And you may have heard me on DC Action Hour where Jeff, Danielle, and I were reviewing and speculating on episodes of Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, and Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, Julie even joined us for one of those episodes. Woohoo! Very fun episode. So be sure to check them out if you haven't already. It should be on this podcast feed. There will be new episodes of that show starting up in October, but today we're back with new episodes of Genretainment. Genretainment, Genretainment, Genretainment. <laughs> echo effect, echo effect, echo um, Just in case you are new to the show, Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, books, and web series, and we give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now, you're listening to episode 121... We are chatting with Kathy Fong Yoneda. Kathy is an independent script consultant whose clientele includes several award winning writers. She is the author of The Script Selling Game, a Hollywood insider's look at getting your script sold and produced. Kathy has over 30 years of industry experience working with Paramount, Disney, MGM, and many other studios. She's presented over 250 workshops and seminars throughout the world and evaluated more than 20,000 submissions in areas of film television, novels, plays, and web series. That's a lot of zeros. It is a lot of zeros. She shares with us lots of great information about being a script reader, being a script consultant, being an executive at a studio, how to pitch for animation, why anybody would want to create a web series. Who would do that? (laughs) Right. Uh, And uh, about many of the excellent web series festivals out there. All sorts of stuff. We even talk about hand puppets. Well, course. I mean, if you're going to talk about these things, you have to talk about hand puppets. Maybe those are mainly me, but we do talk about hand puppets. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get started with Kathy's interview, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song of our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy, and you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interview with Kathy Fong Yoneda. Well, hi, Kathy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Just glad to be here. <laughs> well, it's great to speak with you again, you know, since we did that uh, that panel together at VES. Wow, yeah, what a memorable thing that was. <laughs> wow. All yeah. of those, having to go through all of those different, um, what, do we go to go to webinar? Do we go to Zoom? <laughs> <laughs> you might explain to everybody what that was that you were talking about. Yeah, it's uh, it called Virtually Everything Story, and uh, had a bunch of experts and, and experienced folks on there talking about uh, different forms of storytelling. So it was like an online uh, seminar? Story conference. Conference, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there's a lot, of, a lot of good material, a lot of great guests, and Kathy and I were... We got to talk about web series. <laughs> uh-huh, yep. So, uh, and, uh, you know, we've been reading your book, The Script Selling Game, Getting Your Script Sewed and Produced. It's a second edition. I've been really enjoying it. It's got lots of great information here. I was a script script reader for a little while, so I definitely recognize the script analyst portion. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and I like a lot of you know just a lot of the insider information about about that side about about selling your script. Uh, can you tell people a little bit more about your background? Well, uh, I started off from the very bottom, you know, just working my way up. I was starting the typing goal. Most people don't know what a typewriter is. <laughs> I do. That's where I started. <laughs> and uh, worked my way up, and I was lucky enough to have a mentor, and I uh, named Richard Shepard, and uh, I became a story analyst thanks to him, and that's a, you know, a studio reader. And I worked my way up, and I was uh, at Disney, and Jeffrey Katzenberg was looking for for a fresh pair of eyes because they were having problems on one particular project that they hoped to get into production in the next uh, few months. So he went to the VP and asked her, you know, maybe one of the story analysts could take a look at this, and she likes my work, so she asked me to do it. Of course, I had never done development notes before. <laughs> that was a that was kind of a scary prospect of having to do these notes. But I did seven pages of it, and uh, all I know is that she called me up and she said, uh, "Jeffrey wants you to meet with him at four o'clock today." And I thought, "Oh my gosh!" Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, "Oh, because it goes, oh, this doesn't sound good." But um, I went in, and he just very casually. You know, had the copy of the notes in his hands, and he kind of tossed them over to me on the other side of the desk, and he goes, these are damn good. <laughs> I'd like you to start as an exec next Monday. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> you talk about Hollywood moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's, that's how I, I started as a, an exec at, at Disney, and uh, I was there for a number of years. I've uh, since then also... Uh, worked in executive positions for D- Disney TV Animation, and I also worked uh, at Paramount TV in their um, cable division as well for television. Hmm. And from there, I've also done a lot of consulting, and I guess um, I'm somewhat of a producer, and I, I co-exec produced a TV show called Beyond the Break for the Nickelodeon Teen Network, and that was many, that was like maybe back about 10 years ago. And what was that about? And what kind of show was that? Oh, it was about four young women who were hoping to make it into the pro circuit of surfing. Oh, surfing. Okay. So it was sort of, yeah, kind of like Blue Crush, only as a TV series. Oh, okay. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So it was, um, yeah, it was. I mean, I got to go to Hawaii all the time. <laughs> oh, rough. That's a rough job. But it was a, it was an interesting um, assignment for me, and uh, I I kind of made the decision that this is that's not something I want to do on a permanent basis. So uh, after I finished my my stint on there, I decided to go back to consulting. And around that time, that was when uh, MWP asked me if I could you know write the second edition of the book. So I went pretty quickly from from producing a TV show to producing my second edition. <laughs> oh, cool. You know, we hear about executives all the time in, in television and such. Um, what is the hierarchy of executives? You know, what do executives do, or, or are there different types of executives? And is that is that pathway that you kind of had, like working from story analyst up, is that is that kind of normally how that happens, or or how does that work? You know, it can it can happen any of a number of ways. Uh, you know, in terms of of moving up the ladder. But that's how how it happened for me. But it's very difficult to become a story analyst for the studios. 
sometimes it turns out that you are able to become a development or creative executive because you've worked at a production company, perhaps as you know, doing uh, doing work as an assistant or working as an assistant to an agent or something. A lot of times that's how they find their creative and development executives. Creative and development executives are the ones that usually take care of helping to find material. Uh, a lot of their a lot of their time is spent networking with agents because, of course, they want to gain favoritism from the agents so that the agents will send them the, the next hot new script. We also are charged with finding writers for in-house ideas or finding writers for rewrites on projects. We also have to find different kind of material, writers, usually by going, uh, taking a look at some of the script competitions, like the Nichols, the uh, Final Draft Big Break. We look at the fellowship programs from the different networks and the different studios to see if any of the people in their fellowship program are the kind of writers that we're looking for. And also, too, uh, I used to have to take care of um, taking a look at the student films from the uh, like probably about a dozen different film schools and that was kind of interesting because a lot of times you could sort of spot people's talent just from that huh. uh, also uh, I sometimes took care of grooming and, and uh, sort of shepherding the uh, interns <laughs> as well as everything <laughs> the story department <laughs> then when you get to the VP level then you're, you're sort of um, taking on more responsibilities because most of the VPs, what they do is they cultivate their relationships with producers, directors, actors, agents, and um, other, sometimes other studio execs too, because they really want to be able to find, you know, hear about what's going on at, at what studio or what production company or what agency. Because the more information you have, the better, I guess it is to, to try and make more decisions. Uh, also, they're the ones who make the final decisions on the development slate. Uh, an interesting thing is that out of about, um, you know, 100 projects that may be in development, we're lucky if, if 10% of them get made. Hmm. Wow. That's not a very good percentage. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a rea- that's a reality check for, for everybody. Yeah. Um, also, the, you know, the VPs also take command on various projects in development, whether it's in development or whether it's already in production or if it's in post-production. And the creative and development executives are usually the second in command underneath the VPs. We're the ones that do the development notes and take care of some of the minor details that come up on those various uh, uh, film projects. Also, the VPs work very, uh, they work a lot on the marketing uh, campaign towards projects. Uh, that's a very, very key thing that they have to do, and it's uh it's it's something that you know I really wish I had learned a lot more about, mm-hmm. but I think it's one of those things that that uh, you know almost all of you in film school, or if you guys haven't had a chance to go to film school, if there's a class at your local community college, take something on marketing because I think the more you learn about marketing, uh, I think that kind of helps to give you a leg up. Oh yeah, for sure. So that's what the what the VPs do. <laughs> <laughs> In your book, you talk about story analysts and story consultants. You know, what's the difference between those mm-hmm. two? Well, um, readers are the are the ones that are employed by agencies and production companies, and they're the ones who read submissions. And a submission is uh, basically they're told to do a synopsis of the story and give a give some box office scores. And those scores usually are on things like structure, plot, characterization, dialogue, 
commercial appeal, pacing, budget. And in addition, they usually write a paragraph or two on the strengths and weaknesses of the submission and why they feel that that, that script fits into the needs of the client list of the agency or of the production company's development plan. Now, some of the readers that work for agencies and production companies are freelance, and they're paid by the screenplay, by each screenplay. So some of them don't. It's not always a full-time job for them. Mm -hmm. Now, readers at studios belong to an organized uh, union. It's a story analyst guild, and it's more difficult to get into that because there are fewer positions open. And as you, judging from when I started, there used to be 10 or 11 studios, and I think there are now, what, five? Yeah. Yeah. uh, There are fewer studios, so there's fewer story analyst positions open. And the average studio usually has, like, maybe five to ten analysts, and most of them have been in the guild for quite a while. And they get to have things like health benefits and pensions, like most of the other unions in the entertainment industry. And they also receive uh, higher rates of pay than the agency or production company readers. Which which union is that? It's called the Story Analyst Guild. Oh. Well, we're part of the um, Editors Guild. Ah. (laughs) We're tucked in there with the sound editors, film editors, that kind of thing. Now, folks outside the industry often think that, you know, consultants, script consultants, which is what I do now, are the same as readers or story analysts, and they really aren't. You know, consultants, yes, they read your screenplay or novel, but they do not do the synopsis of your work. In fact, most of the work, while it's focused on the same subjects like structure, plot, you know, character and dialogue and all that, um, they also, just, uh, you know, go into details on why a screenplay works and doesn't work. They do extensive notes, and they usually provide, you know, suggestions, options, and examples. And our job is to help the writer get back on track for their rewrite. Mm. And some consultants, however, will also specialize in other areas, you know, specific areas like some of them, you know, specialize in horror, comedy, thrillers. Uh, I used to specialize a lot in, in family entertainment because of my Disney background. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And some only do film. Some do film and television. Uh, some do not do novels. You know, for apt- they they don't really specialize in adaptation. Mm. Uh, some do not. Some actually will do animation. Some don't. I happen to be able to do. I, I've done all of those. Um, oh wow! Because I've worked in a, a lot of different arenas of of the industry, and some are, are consultants in marketing and in career counseling. That sort of is what, what's the difference between those who are story analysts and those who are um, consultants. Great. Another thing you talk about a little bit is the concept of 30-10 or 30-10. slash um, <laughs> And that goes along with reading, reading scripts. Uh, what is that? <laughs> well, it's it's just an industry slang that we kind of don't like to tell people on the outside. <laughs> it sounds awful. But so for reading a script, that um, if we know it doesn't have much potential, uh, you know, some of the execs will just read the first, you know, 20, 30 pages, and if it doesn't hook them, then they go to the last 10 pages. Now, studio story analysts are required by the guild to read every page of a submission, mm-hmm. but readers who are with agents and um, production companies don't have to adhere to that because they're not part of the guild. So, you know, unfortunately, that, you know, I hate to say it, but the 3010 read also by now it's turned out to be more like a 105 on occasion <laughs> for some of the effects that are a little bit lazier. Uh, they will sometimes if the first 10 pages don't hook them, they'll actually sometimes just go to the last 
five pages and just see how it ends. Has there been a significant reduction in attention spans or something? Well, you know, I think because of technology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Mark is used to my anti-tech rantings, so. <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, you, you know, hopefully in the best of all possible worlds, you know, somebody will write a script that's just so riveting you can't keep you can't help it. You'll just keep turning the pages. Mm-hmm. And I'd say maybe one out of ten of the scripts that I used to read as a story analyst would do that for me, where I would be able to give it um, a consider or a recommend. Have there ever so been that, some that are just so painful to read, but you just had a slog through? Or <laughs> at the studio studio analyst, I had to read every. Each, mm. uh, sometimes yes, it was hard. <laughs> so, uh, other, yeah, there are times when I just when I thought, oh my God, how how did, how come this got represented, or how come that producer sent this for me? Because <laughs> we don't accept unsolicited, so it has to usually if it came through a studio, it had to come because it was uh, through the process of having an agent, a manager, an entertainment attorney, uh, or a producer. Mm. But occasionally there would be people who maybe were the roommate of Michael Eisner when he was in college, mm. and this kid decides to send in a a script, and yeah. so things like that have happened before. I say, yeah, it would be like just you reading it, going, "Wow, they must know someone really important." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's sort of part of the downside. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That happens in every industry, in every place. You know, any business, you know, there's going to be some people. It doesn't have to be just entertainment business, you know? Yeah. Well, it's true, you know. People will always ask, you know, people who know people will ask for mm-hmm. favors. Yeah. And, you know, in this case, though, <laughs> as, you know, when you're an analyst or you're a creative exec. You've got to give your honest opinion because you're talking about millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> for a movie or hundreds of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to pay someone. So you can only uh, be so polite. That, that, yeah. You know. <laughs> I think you talk a little bit about series Bibles, too, in, in the book. And for people mm-hmm. who haven't heard of that, what is a series Bible? You know, um, a series Bible... It's nothing more than sort of like a, a, a blueprint, a, a detailed proposal for your your series, and it usually contains more detailed description of the series concept. So it usually includes a breakdown of the main and recurring characters. Uh, there's usually an outline of the story arc for the first season, and there's usually a paragraph on each of the following story arcs for the next few seasons, mm. along with either a detailed synopsis or script to the pilot. Because the story arcs have to give us, as well as the network or showrunner, an idea of, of how the writer sees the development of his series. In other words, does is there enough story interest that's going to keep the series going? Yeah. They like to know that that there's enough there for at least five seasons. Mm-hmm. You may get canceled after a couple so, episodes, but they need to know that you'd be prepared for years if need be. Well, yeah, they they want to know that you've really thought this out. That mm-hmm. it's not just one of those things. It's one kind of a one hit wonder where. Somebody just thinks, oh, this is a great idea, and yeah, maybe it is for a season, but then after that, people will get tired of it. Mm-hmm. So is there, you know, maybe, that's why they like to know, they like to have a little paragraph on, you know, okay, what do you want to do in the next few years after that? 
where your character's going from there. So uh, that's usually part of, of the series Bible. As long as, and also too, because you you need to have a, you usually have to have a pilot episode mm-hmm. that goes along with it, so that they can understand how you plan to introduce the concept of your series, and they can get an idea of sort of the, uh, oh, the tone, like especially if it's a comedy, they need to. The tone is so important, you know. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, um, yeah. Is it going to be a, a raucous comedy? Is it going to be uh, a family comedy? You know, there's some that you know. Some of the comedies you know just by by uh, reading the pilot episode, you get the feel for if this is something that's really going to be able to carry over, not just for a year, but for several years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen shows on TV before where they have this fantastic pilot, and then it kind of yeah. goes downhill from there. Or, or even more often, they have a great season one, and it, then after that, you feel like there's character plots character arcs suddenly just fall apart. And there have been plenty of times where we've mm-hmm. watched a pilot and Marx has been like, well, that was interesting, but I'm not sure how they're going to make a series out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they Sometimes. do a lot of testing, too. Because yeah. you notice that, uh, that nowadays they aren't afraid to, after three or four episodes, just yank it off the air. Mm-hmm. A lot of the networks are doing that now. Oh, they realize yeah. that, you know, if it's not working after the first few episodes, then they've made a mistake and might as well yank it off the air rather than to uh, commit to it for another year or two. Yeah. Sometimes really fast. <laughs> Fox is notorious for that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> if they'd done that when X, I mean, they could have easily done that to X-Files. It didn't get a huge um, audience until the reruns hit for the summer. If they had yanked it, we wouldn't have the X-Files as we know it today. I think that's the true level of like like a higher level of skill of where beyond just green lighting the show is is then seeing the potential of a show that maybe doesn't get a hit right away but can become a hit sleeper hit probably and that's tricky well i think <laughs> it, it well it is tricky but what's great is that you'll notice that some of the things that are coming out from streaming and digital series now mm-hmm. you know like like um House of Cards and some of those that have come out, they were things that the networks thought were a little bit edgy or a little bit too risky. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're now finding out that, hey, but some of them are pretty darn original. Mm-hmm. And they've got great great actors and great producers behind them, and they've been able to maintain wonderful storylines to keep these guys going. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, you know, may I... You know, I love House Cards, but <laughs> I mean, you know, there's when you think of things like you know Empire and some of the others that have come out, you just you, you know a lot of the a lot of the networks turned them down. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, I don't know, you know, and it was a little risky. So yeah, that's well, a good thing or they've been picked up, them. yeah, after cancellation, uh, like uh, Longmire. Mm-hmm. Longmire, you know, got dropped, and then uh, Netflix is like, we'll take it over. Yeah. Or, or that's a great show. A really good example, I think, of what you just said was is Stranger Things because mm-hmm. that's, I think, it seems to be a big hit for Netflix and uh, really and that was turned down like all over the place until Netflix picked it up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know the audiences now are they're a little bit more picky, you know, and not every series is for everybody. No, and no. so it's nice to be able to have choices, and I think it's great. I, I love the fact that that there's more choice now. Than we ever had before. Oh yeah, so many shows, hundreds of shows. 
He's great. <laughs> so you talked about you, you did work in animation for a while. So I'm curious uh, how, because I I can see like how there's plenty of material on how people can kind of work their way towards pitching a film or pitching live action TV and stuff, but not a lot about animation. You know, if someone wanted to try to pitch an animated series, you know, what, what were the first steps they would have to take? Well, with animation, it's I mean, you do start off with it with they call it a springboard, which is the same thing as a log line like you would, you know, with a live-action project. But with animation, you have to pitch your project in a more visual way. Mm-hmm. You have to bring the color and the rhythm and the, you know, and the tone of, of animation forward. And so there are, there are three things that I always tell people to think about. The first is think genre. You, you have to have a very clear-cut genre in animation, even more so than in live-action. Uh, is it a comedy, you know, like Ratatouille, Toy Story, Zootopia, you know, one of those? Is it a physical comedy, like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which I actually enjoy that movie. Um, <laughs> my my sister used to read the book. She read the book. Mm. It was based on, you know. Or is it edgy, you know, like The Night Before Christmas or any of those Tim Burton animated things that he does. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's pretty edgy stuff. It's It's comedy in a way, but it's just edgy. Mm-hmm. Is it an action adventure uh, like Aladdin or Jungle Book, Transformer, Generation Two? Uh, those are action adventure type um, genres, or is it a dra- more of a dramatic type like Lion King, um, Mulan? Is it a mystery or supernatural like Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle, or is it you know more traditional like a fairy tale or a legend like Little Mermaid, Princess of the Frog, Frozen, that that type, or um, is it? Nearly animal antics, like, uh, and I don't mean those cat videos. I, I mean, like, <laughs> age, Bugs Life, Finding Nemo. Uh, we call them animal antics in, in, in animation. But you have to think genre when you're talking about it. They, we need to know immediately within the first few sentences that you're describing to us. We know that it'll fit into one specific genre. So think genre first, then think fun. And it just all it means is just you know tap into your creative imagination. Uh, go go to that fantasy of the child that's inside of each of us, and think how can you make the characters and the situations uh, bring out that sense of humor. I mean nonsensical jokes, uh, sight and sound gags, or you know uh, creating you know having a character or that is a caricature or is an exaggerated sort of personality and. Good examples, especially you can do this with villains. They're great examples, like Cruella de Vil or uh, Jafar and Aladdin. Mm-hmm. Those, those are examples of how much fun you can have, because that's half of that's half of the picture is is seeing what the villain's going to come up with next, and and how creative can the hero be against the villain? You know, everybody starts thinking about the main character and how heroic, or you know, he or she is going to be, but heck, half the fun of it comes out of what they're going to do, especially in an animated film, what are they going to do against the uh, the villain and, mm-hmm. you know, the antagonist? That's the fun part, I think, for animation. And the other thing is think family. And unless it's a more dramatic or horrific storyline, and there are a lot of, a lot more animated uh, horror stories and, and um, you know, I guess I would call it more adult animation coming out now. Mm-hmm. But in general... Thinking family is, is, you know, is good for the other 80% of the animated films that are out there. 
because there's mm-hmm. only a small percentage that are more horrific, you know, type type uh, animations. So, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, films like Shrek, we should, you know, that's a good example because it had both sight and sound dialogue humor that was great for both kids and adults. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And other, you know, other examples I think of, of projects that had a, you know, larger than a, than a range for kids was like The Incredibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ratatouille, Nightmare Before Christmas. A lot of them had sight and sound gags that were really very adult, but the kids didn't get it, but they saw that there were funny things going on, mm-hmm. and it made them laugh. Or more adult oh. that's not horrific, but I love the TV show Archer. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, oh. Kind of, that's not family-friendly. <laughs> no, it's not, but it, it you know, no, I, no, I would freak it, out if, any of my nieces or nephews were watching it, but I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so that, the beauty of, of animation is that because it can be done so much cheaper now, they are starting to to use it to do like a lot of the horrific, more adult kind of uh, fantasy thrillers or bloody violence. <laughs> a lot of it. A lot of this, well, because, you know, think about it. A lot of the, there's several, several things that, you know, like they, they're, they're, they're adapting uh, graphic novels now. Mm-hmm. And some of them are pretty graphic, too. <laughs> really graphic graphic novels. Well, it's just that, you know, that's only, that's only like maybe 15, 20%, though, that will not apply to family. But almost all of the, I would say, blockbuster animated movies are in the 80% where they're really more towards family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, another thing that I think is great about animation is that uh, a lot of the creators for anime, animated projects, they've made sizzle reels, which are just short clips, like trailers, usually just one or two minutes long, and it gives us ideas of the highlights of the visual idea of your project. Now, I want to put a warning sign on this. This usually doesn't work well if you're submitting things to Disney, Pixar, or DreamWorks, because they have their own distinct animation style. Mm-hmm. But you could still do like a little a, a little visual thing, which kind of gives them an idea of maybe the setting, mm-hmm. or maybe you want to, you know, if it just if you have some things just about if it's a if it's in a strange land or it's out if it's on another planet, maybe you have an idea of a, of a background or a backdrop, and you might want to show a few a few illustrations or something just, you know, as a visual thing to kind of uh, have with you while you're pitching the story. So those are the best suggestions, though, is this, you know, uh, you still should try and keep it within, I would say, three to four minutes for the total pitch. Your civil wheel shouldn't be more than a minute, maybe two minutes at the tops. Uh, and, you know, just think genres, think family, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where you want to want them to kind of start to use their imagination because that's, you know, uh, especially when you get to the think fun part. If you see them starting to crack a smile when you're describing something, you know that you've got them interested. So that's why I always say, you know, talk about one of the key scenes and how funny it could be, and they get a sense then of the type of humor that you're trying to put in there, and it also starts them to start thinking uh, about what you're trying to describe. Mm-hmm. So when, once you once they start to get the movie in their head, that's what we're trying to do. If you're, you're trying to get them to, you have to think beyond 
the story part, they need to start thinking about it visually. So, and and, it, and especially with animation, it's 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 very key. I would act out a scene with hand puppets. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would work though. <laughs> <laughs> Um, They're doing a lot of hand puppets in web series now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of web series, let's talk a little bit about web series. You do talk about web series in the second edition. I know you've you've had a lot more experience with web series now since since that first edition. Can you talk a little bit about why why would somebody want to make a web series? Well, I, I think right now is just such a great time to make a web series. It's just a personal observation. But, you know, there's really quite a bit more democracy of the web. Um, I mean, I know you and I have had this conversation, and you've mentioned some of this in your book. I mean, it's kind of nice that you don't have any studio or network that's telling you you can't do another dysfunctional family comedy because mm-hmm. they already have one on the air and another in development. You know, can, <laughs> oh, okay. I think, you know, if you feel your comedy's better than some of the ones that you've seen elsewhere, then, hey, go ahead and post it and take your chances on YouTube or Vimeo. You know, you have nothing to lose by doing that. And right now, at least, there are no broadcast standards and practices or uh, Big Brother, you know, to monitor the content of your project. Now, for some folks, I mean, you know, it can be a good or bad thing. But, you know, if your project has meaningful content, you know, that backs it up, there isn't anyone to, you know, block out raw language or, Mm -hmm. you know, visuals and stuff like that. And, And unlike, you know, the traditional areas of film and TV, you don't really need agents or managers to represent you to do a web series. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just go ahead and do it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of middlemen so that I can think get that's, cut up. Yeah. Well, it's, hey, you know, those middlemen, um, let's see, managers get paid on the average 15 to 20%. Mm-hmm. Agents get 10%. Some people also have entertainment attorneys, which, you know, mm-hmm. at three, three to $400 an hour costs quite a bit. So why not... Um, Save that money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do a web series. I, I just I I'm so in love with web series. It's just I it's it's my, you know, guilty pleasure and <laughs> try to watch a new one at least once a week if I can, if, I, if there's enough time. Now you you go to a lot of different web series festivals and I know you just got back from one, uh, K uh Webfest. Uh can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Well it took place in Seoul, Korea and it was the second uh year of, of the K-Web Fest, and it is the only web series festival in Asia, in all of Asia. Oh, really? really? So, I would have thought there'd be more. I'm Ooh. not sure why, but so far, it's just been K-Web Fest. Wow. I thought so. there was one that was in Hong Kong that lasted one year. It hmm. just did not have the attendance, and I think it just was not organized as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, it only lasted one year. How many uh, so, how many actual Korean web series were there? Oh God, I would I think there was probably I think the total number of web series was something like maybe seventy or eighty. Mm-hmm. Wow! I and I think I think um, more than half of them were Korean. So I would say maybe forty of them. That's wow. very impressive. Uh, Korean. Yeah. That's a lot of Korean creators. Yeah. Young Man Kang, who's the guy that uh is you know, founded it, he came to the LA Web Fest and, and LA Web Fest is the first web series festival. It was 
put together by its founder, Michael LaJackley, who happens to be a very good friend of mine. And I happen to be on the board for the L.A. Web Fest. And one of my um, one of my duties is to arrange the panels and workshops and uh, and also to just sort of get a, you know get a chance to get to know some of the web series creators. So Young was at one of these, I think it was maybe back in 2013. He entered his animated uh, animated web series called Kimchi Warrior. And it was, it was a very fun, comical kids uh, thing, which actually just talked about different different health things and how kimchi can, can, can cure anything. <laughs> <laughs> fun, light web series. But and it was it was animated and it was just a delight and it actually won some awards at the LA Web Fest. But more importantly, Young was standing there looking at everything that was going on and he said, I wanna bring this to Korea. I think people will really enjoy going to something like this. Mm-hmm. And so uh he sat down and he talked with Michael and uh Michael helped him uh helped him out and, and, and you know, how are they structured? And we've done this with several other uh, web series festivals that have been produced around the world. So there's sort of a partnership that we have with some of them, you know, including uh, ones in Rome, Marseille, France, uh, mm-hmm. Melbourne, Australia, let's see, uh, Rio, down in Brazil, mm-hmm. Webfest Berlin, mm-hmm. Sicily Webfest. Mm-hmm. Those Italians really love those web series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's, I think there's maybe about ten or eleven partners. Uh, there are some other web series festivals all over too. But one of the things that we all kind of agreed upon is that we really that the web series festivals should be something that was for the web series community. That we have workshops and panels that will help people, that will inspire them and help educate them and give them productive tips and suggestions for the audience in case they want to make their own web series fest, uh, web series um, event. So it's been um, kind of interesting. We've, we've really formed this unique little partnership, and as a result, a lot of the web series founders go to each other's festivals, and they will select one or two web series that they've seen and bring it back to their own festival. So it really is helpful because the people who are selected, their web series gets shown in another country. So there's a global appeal to all of this. And I think that's what's so exciting about it is that a web series can be seen as long as you have good internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see it almost anywhere you – well, maybe not so much China since they have their own uh, <laughs> internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was some controversy. Yeah, I, I, I've heard they have pirated versions of uh, Western um, Western Internet. So, so <laughs> I somehow yeah. they are getting things. <laughs> but, you know, web series are, are really a great way, I think, for people now to express themselves. And especially if you're, you know, if you're not sure if you want to get into film or television, you know, web series is a great way to start out. And you know to get get a, a feel for what it's like to have to uh, create a storyline and produce it and get it out there. And uh, you know, it's I mean, it's, of course, film and television and web series have have their own particular differences, but still, it's um, 
people who have, who have done web series have gone on to have their projects become TV series or it's helped a lot of stars to become who are on web web series to become big stars. And in general, uh, one, a couple of good examples. Randall Park, who plays the father in um, Fresh Off the Boat, mm-hmm. he was in two web series <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, really? before he got his big break, yeah. And another gal who, uh, an actress who was uh, on two web series, uh, is Gina Rodriguez, who is now Jane the Virgin. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she won a Golden Globe her first year. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in the series. And she was in two web series. Uh, We have, that you probably have have, uh, also heard about, there's several uh, people who have captured, you know, their web series have captured enough views and, and enough, um, I guess, what, what you would call, I call it heat, that um, some of the uh, some of the networks are now talking to these people about possibly creating some ideas for TV shows for them. So, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to, to think about web series not only as a, 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 an art form onto itself or, me, or a piece of media onto itself, but also as one that can transfer over into television or film. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Michael, uh, Michael and I have had this long talk about the fact that web series, more than any of the other uh, formats or platforms, has the the, I guess... The best has the best chance of being more of a unifier in the global community. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to unite people uh, is, is you know by doing something. You know, because a lot of it is you know by sharing stories and culture and diversity and all that. You know, that's how I think you know uh, uh, people start to come together. Mm-hmm. So he really thinks that you know. I mean, we've been he's been to a lot more than I have. I think he's been to like. 10, 12 different uh, webcasts. I've only been to five or six of them. And, you know, but each one is very different. And I'm pleasantly surprised when I go to the ones that are outside of the U.S., just how much we have in common with them. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. though some of their web series are, are, have slightly different points of view than ours, there still is something that's relatable about mm-hmm. it, that being part of the creative community and the fact that there are people who maybe don't even have the same language as you, but we can still appreciate and uh, respond uh, emotionally yeah. to whatever it is that we see. And that's, it, it's huge. And I do think that, you know, I, I agree with Michael. I, I really do think that web series and, and uh, global communication uh, through our our stories is, is one way that we can start uniting uh, yeah. people around the world yeah. instead of dividing them. Amen. We're running out of time, unfortunately. But uh, before we go, you do have like uh, there's one section in your book that is like big nine things to avoid. Uh, can you just grab one of those and tell us a little bit about it? I think no matter what format you're working on, whether it's film, television, the web, or even as a novel, you need to know who your target audience is. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people forget about it. Uh, whenever I ask this question, oh, you know, oh but wait, my target audience is everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. They they always say that. They always say, oh, it's going to appeal to everybody. Doesn't yeah, matter if they're young or old and and all this. And 
I, I swear to God, nine out of ten times, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and and wow. so what I have to tell people is, is, you know, think about other produced projects in the same genre as yours. Mm-hmm. And here's some questions you need to ask yourself about it, okay? Think about some of those produced projects in the same genre. I'm just saying, what was the predominant age range of the audience that went to see those films? Mm-hmm. Do your homework. Or if you saw those films, what did you think? You know, were you, you were in the audience? Who was the, what was the predominant age range? And was it mostly a, a male or female audience? Mm-hmm. You know, that's important, too. Did it skew more towards the guys and more towards the women? And did these films have what we call crossover appeal? And by that, I mean, did it attract a wide range of folks? Like, did it cross socioeconomic boundaries? Did it cross racial and cultural boundaries or gender and age lines? So those are things to think about. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it's important, which studio or production company distributed or produced those films? And how did they promote it? And how did they target their audience? You know, what was the main emphasis, theme, or thrust of the trailers and the promos and print ads and online ad campaigns? Mm-hmm. And this is so, really where you uh, recommend knowing a little bit about marketing. That certainly, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, marketers are all about demos, yeah. right? So, <laughs> demographics. <laughs> He's trying to do the lingo. They know about demos. <laughs> I think that's a, a great point right. to, to end with. A lot, something a lot of people don't think about, unfortunately. And I, and I made that mistake. So, myself. what is your what? A quick response to someone who says their audience is everybody. I basically do tell them you you need to you know if you don't know who your audience is you need to go back and do your homework. <laughs> and I do tell people they they do need to do these things. They need to think about you know some of the projects that were in the same genre, mm-hmm. and why were they why were they popular? Why did they succeed? Just doing it blindly and just saying well. Everybody in my family loves it. <laughs> okay, well then, who's your family? Yeah, that'd be a good starting place. You know, <laughs> you, know I mean, like, you know, but it, it, it's it's really it's very hard because I you know I don't like dashing anybody's dreams, but there's also <laughs> a point that everybody has to have a reality check, and and this yeah. is one of them. If you don't know who your target audience is to begin with, uh, then the people who make the decisions. Mm-hmm. If they, if you can't tell them, or if they, if it's not readily apparent when you're pitching the project, mm-hmm. they're going to probably say no. I imagine that develops into quite a pet peeve for a lot of people in the industry. <laughs> well, it is. We unfortunately have to say no a heck of a lot more yeah. times than we say yes. Yeah. So what we've decided I, is when I always tell people. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. So what we've decided is when I pitch my made-up uh, animated series, I'm going to use hand puppets, and I'm going to say it's made for everyone. Everybody. And everyone will love it. <laughs> <laughs> Have your puppets say it. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, see, if you have the puppets talking, mm-hmm. then they'll maybe they'll talk back to the puppets, and then you, should, you wouldn't be able to – you won't feel like they're ta- taking it personally on you. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell him that. He's going to start carrying around a puppet everywhere. <laughs> We're starting to make up a TV show here. No. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. You can tell we're slap happy. Just... All righty. Well, before we... <laughs> well, thanks a lot. It's a lot of great information, Kathy. And 
Before we go, where can everyone find you and your book? Uh, you're welcome to contact me on my website, which is www.kathyfongyanetta.com, and that's spelled K-A-T-H-I-E-F-O-N-G-Y-O-N-E-D-A. And you can you can uh, reach me there. Also, you can uh, get my book at uh, you know Amazon, or you can go to my publishers, which is www.mwp.com. And I believe they give a 25% discount on uh, their books. So that's how people can get my book, which is a script selling game. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, you have a lovely evening, and thank you again. We really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. All right. You have a good night. <laughs> Thanks. Good night. Care. Hi, I'm Paul Chitlick, writer from the new Twilight Zone and the author of Rewrite, How to Strengthen Structure, Characters, and Drama in Your Screenplay, and this is Genretainment. Well, thanks, Kathy. We had a great time chatting with you, and everyone can find links to anything we discussed in the show notes. And I should mention that in October, I'll be seeing Kathy in person as we teach at the 2017 Marseille WebFest Writers Residency. Mm-hmm. Residence. I'm looking forward to meeting with her in person and, of course, seeing France, which will be really exciting. Uh, before we go, and of course, checking out the Marseille Web Fest. I've always heard lots of great things about that yeah. fest. Uh, now, before we go, we want to remind you that you can always keep track of us by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher under Sci-Fi Pulse Radio, or by following our Genretainment Facebook page, my Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, clicking over to Genretainment.com, or follow all of the Sci-Fi Pulse Radio shows at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next next time. time. Ben Monkey.